Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 130, and the Food Trekkers are moving inexorably towards Natal, where Zulu King Dingan awaits. At about the same time, and as you'll hear next episode, a large Food Trekker commander of more than 360 Boers, Griqua, and Rolong warriors were going to gather with the intent of finishing off Mzilikatsi Komalo. The Amandabeli King had arrived back at Mosecha in the clay in Mariko Valley and had just fended off an impi sent by Dingan. Also by now, the number of trekkers arriving at Tabanchu had increased to a few thousand, including a large party under Peter Jacobs that had left the Beaufort West district. These were the remnants of the Slachter's Neck Rebellion. They were relatives and friends of the Boers who'd been hanged 22 years earlier. I covered the Slachter's Neck Rebellion in episode 74. The bitter resentment about what the British had done had never been forgotten nor forgiven. And here was the result. Dozens of families from Beaufort West and elsewhere determined to escape the might of the British Empire in their little wagons, determined to seek freedom on the expansive felt, the deep African hinterland with its mysteries and excitement and danger. There was also Jacob de Klaak, who had left the Baviance River district. Sixty-two families and thirty wagons. Another important group were the 100 trekkers, led by 72-year-old Jacobus Johannes Ace, which had departed from the Judenhague district in March 1837. The real leader of this group, however, was his son, Piet. He'd befriended Louis Trichard a few years before. Piet was called dynamic, energetic, charismatic. Piet Ace had also visited Dingana two years earlier to sound out the Zulu king's views on possibly granting land to the trekkers in Natal. Ace was well-liked in the Eastern Cape, and when he arrived in Grahamstown en route to the hinterland, a deputation of 1820 British settlers turned up to present him with a huge Bible bound in leather from Russia and inscribed with a stirring message that God would guide the foot-trekkers because the folk had faith. Considering the rancorous relationship between the English and Afrikaans later, this was really extraordinary. There's a monument at the spot this meeting took place outside Makanda, or Grahamstown, on the west side of the R350 highway that heads up the hill past the airfield. It's known as the Bible Monument, the two stone walls designed to look like an open Bible and facing the directions the foot-trekkers were going to travel into the interior. William Rowland Thompson led the group of 1820 settlers as they presented the imposing Bible to a visibly moved beat ace. Thompson then made a speech expressing sadness that the Boers were leaving the district, and in these 17 years since the 1820 settlers' arrival, there had always been cordiality between the Boers and the English. Thompson was also aware that the English were going to lose their biggest asset when fighting against the Amakosa. After the speech, Ace and his folk set off for Tabanju, which lay about a month away by Oxwagon. The trekkers at Tabanju were chomping at the bit, meanwhile. Gerrit Maritz and his followers were preparing to leave. Despite his intense dislike for Hendrik Potgieter, he agreed it was in the Boers' best interest to move north instead of towards Natal and wanted to start trundling back over the Vaal River now that the Amandabeli had been sent packing. Piet Ratif disagreed with the location of the promised land. He had set his heart on Natal and was busy trying to negotiate a special deal with Dingan 
about land there. In June, Piet Ace's trek had arrived at Tabanchu, and on the 29th of June, 1837, he led a group of his men who rode into Gerrit Moritz's camp with a view to convincing him to join the Retief in Natal, or at least to head over the Drakensberg into Natal initially. It didn't end well. A huge argument broke out that verged on violence, and Piet Ace hurriedly left the camp along with his men. In July 1837, the Ford trekkers began to move again, heading east along the Sand River with Retief at the front of the large convoy. He moved ahead at a pace. Behind him was Moritz's trekkers, and further behind them was Porthita taking things in his usual more leisurely pace. They stayed together for the first part of the journey for safety. Porthita was a military man at heart and was aware of his fragile flank. In other words, aware that as they moved northeast to their west, they left. There remained a threat, and that was the Mzilikatsi Komanu and his few thousand warriors. Portkita also acted as a rear guard because the trekkers heard rumors that some of the local chiefs, along with some Griqua, were considering raiding the stranglers. Retief was also told about the threats, and as usual, he took to writing a letter, all three. These were sent to the local chiefs, as well as the Griqua, warning that should any raids take place, there would be dire consequences. On the 4th of July, Retief sent five men on horseback to search for a path over the Drakensberg into Natal. Up to now, the Boers had headed there using the route through the Amakosa territories or from the north. He camped alongside the Sand River where the modern town of Ventersburg is today, just east of Velkom, and waited for the five to return. Gerrit Meritz had also stopped nearby at the Duren River to take stock. While all of this was going on, in Natal, a series of incidents were playing out along the upper reaches of the Imzanyati, or Buffalo River. This could be one of the more important rivers of southern Africa when it comes to our history. It's the largest tributary of the Tugela River for a start, and meanders for 426 kilometers from its source near Majuba Hill, the Hill of Doves, northeast of Volksrust today. That's an Mpumalanga, or on the KwaZulu-Natal border from where it flows south past Newcastle, then turns southeast past a place called Rourke's Drift. After some distance, it joins the Tugela River near Mkantla. All these names, these places, are significant. The Mzanyati has a number of tributaries, including the Ingangani from the southwest and the Blood River from the northeast, where it joins near Kandi Mountain. There's another famous place called Isandlawana, which lies about 20 kilometers southeast of the Mzanyati not far from the Tugela confluence. It was close to the source of the river that trouble was brewing for both the Fortrekkers and for the Amazulu. The trouble was going to cause waves of fear to wash as far south as Port Natal. Dingan had been watching this area closely because his great enemy Mzilikazi had escaped from near there, and there were signs over more than a decade he'd been gone that he may come back. By April 1837, Dingan was even more troubled by the Kadi people, and specifically their chief Dube Kasilwani. They inhabited a small territory to the north of the Tugela, in the vicinity of where Kranskop is today. Dube was often referred to as peace-loving, but some say this was post-ipso facto, because a lot of men killed by Dingana were also characterized as peace-loving. Just to add more information, Zulu oral history says that Dingana had Dube killed for no other reason than he excelled during a dancing competition in which the Zulu king was participating. Very old rule here, if you have a dancing king, don't show off and make him look like an amateur. Bad career move. Uvezi 
inunyanda ngabadeli goes the most famous izibongo zikadingana. Vezi nomvanda mgabadeli means basically the prancer. And this is how the entire 430-line poem about Dingan starts. Clearly then, Dingan has set high standards in dancing competitions, but would brook no real challenge. It's a bit like the story about Nero, who played the sitara, a stringed instrument like a lyre. Never a fiddle, by the way, because fiddles hadn't been invented yet. Nero would enter singing competitions despite having a feeble singing voice, and he was lauded as an artifex, an artist, winning many prizes, where the judges had more sense than to vote down the emperor. According to Suetonius, Nero's last words were, Qualius artifex perio, or what an artist dies in me. So clearly he wasn't short of ego. Neither, it appears, was Dingan. So back to Dubu Kasselwani. He had his own problems because a nearby clan known as the Magwaza, headed up by a chief called Mankondo, occupied the land between the Tkadi and the Tugela River. This was not acceptable to Dube, who is reported to have ordered his warriors to gather together and prepare for war. The grazing along the banks of the Great Tugela River was good, and he was not prepared to share. Quarrels broke out between the two clans with incidents and skirmishes for some weeks. It was around this point that Bankondo is supposed to have sent Dingan a message claiming that Dube was a traitor because he was talking about using the Tugela as a crossing point to flee if he should fall into disfavor with Dingan. Even today, that allegation sounds rather fishy. So whether Dube danced well or Bankondo's treacherous allegation kicked off the next act, it was the next act that we need to really appreciate. The Zulu king planned to rid himself of not just Dube, but the entire Kadi clan, a kind of mini-ethnic cleansing event. Nyembezi, the prose poet, said later that the Kwamagwaza and Mankondo lived near the Mbuzamo River, which actually is much further towards the coast alongside Kwadukuza or Stanga. If you glance at a map, that seems to be too far south, but it appears that the Kwamagwaza had shifted upriver and were now close to where Dube lived, near Kranskop and Nkantla. The upshot was the area which today is still riven by Indonesian violence was riven by Indonesian violence way back in the third decade of the 19th century. And so, in April 1837, a message was sent by Dingana to Dubi Kasulwani that he should take his people to Nongokri Forest, which we believe is more likely to be the Ngoi Forest, still there today, inland from Mtunzini on KwaZulu-Natal's north coast. Dingana told Dube to cut down a number of trees to use as poles to repair his vast palisade at Mgunguglovo. You know enough by now that when a Zulu king called you for a special visit or a special dance or an unusual gathering, there was a chance that something sinister was afoot. It took a few weeks for the Kadi to cut the poles and then they were told to deliver these in person to Dingana all the way in Mgunguglovo, near modern-day Ulundi. The significant journey, carting poles, you'd agree. When they arrived, Ningana surveyed the throng with their poles and exclaimed, You are not all here! And he cast his eyes across the hundreds of Kadi men assembled before him. Go back and fetch the rest! Dingan demanded that every person should carry a pole, even the old woman who complain of bad knees, said the Zulu king. Eventually, over a thousand men, women and children walked from their home on the upper Mzanyati to Umgunglovu carrying poles, the line of people over three kilometers long. Because Chief Dube was not a member of the Born Yesterday clan, 
He prudently decided to stay at home and sent his people, or most of them, to Dingana's special military poll operation. The 1,000 filed into Dingana's capital, depositing the poles at a spot near the Izigodlo, deep inside the palisade. There would be very little chance of escape for these folk. As they huddled together, trapped, a circle of warriors surrounded them, and then Anunduna shouted, Bambene! Lay hold of them! And most were killed on the spot. Word reached Dubi Kasulwani of the atrocity, and he fled towards the Ngoyu forest, while his son Nkawe headed straight for Port Natal. Dube was eventually discovered and killed, and the Zulu fanned out across Kali territory, searching for cattle and destroying all their settlements. Two clans from Nakari followed Mkawe to seek shelter with the hunters and traders at Port Natal, and they were followed in turn by messengers sent by Dingan. The Zulu king was enraged. His followers had been welcomed and warned that unless they were captured and brought back to Mkunglovu, the settlers would be attacked and killed. Well, it is said that none of the Zulu kings has proven to be more elusive and complex in character and none more controversial than Dingane. From the moment he murdered his half-brother Shaka, the narrative tradition inside Zulu oral storytelling, let alone the colonists' versions, vacillated between complex, misunderstood man to feared and loathed devil. Digging into archives of various sorts comes with many warning signs, but perhaps the most interesting are the original recordings and transcripts of the praised poets who were alive during Dingana's time and some were interviewed starting in the 1870s. A local magistrate called James Stewart made the first intensive study of Zulu history way back starting in the 1870s all the way through the 1920s. His obsession has created a remarkable and unique record which still has not been properly tackled by historians or academics. These eyewitness accounts date back to Dingan's days in the 1830s and were transcribed with meticulous care. While serving as a magistrate in Natal and Zululand, Stuart wrote down over 360 versions of praises of Zulu kings and heroes, most of which are unpublished and can be found in the Kitty Campbell Africana Library in Durban. Academics Becker Bountengobo and David Rykoft had a go at analysing the praise songs of Dingana, subtitled Izibongo Zika Dingana. Among those who met Dingana in his early reign was Nathaniel Isaacs, the ivory trader, who described him as avowedly desirous of cultivating peace and indulging in the sweets it afforded. This was shortly after Dingan had become king and killed Shaka. Isaac's view changed. By the time Dingan began demanding the traders hand over the Qadi, Isaacs was calling the Zulu king bloodthirsty, capricious, treacherous, self-indulgent, an absolute despot, an ingrate, and an inveterate liar. Now, about this inveterate liar business, a small sidebar to this salubrious tale. You see, the traders in Port Natal had persisted in their campaign to convince the British to formally annex Natal, or at least recognize the port. To curry favor, a few dozen traders gathered together on the 23rd of June, 1835, and had renamed Port Natal Durban in honor of the governor, Benjamin Durban. Also in that year, and amidst much fanfare, a most delicate treaty was signed between Dingan, King of the Zulus, and the British residents of Port Natal. That this document exists and was signed is not disputed. It's the terms that were going to cause distress. You see, Dingan had apparently waived claim to persons and property residing at the then Port Natal, and this implied he waived claim over his former vassals. However, the text continued somewhat confusingly to say, 
He still, however, regards them as his subjects liable to be sent for whenever he may think proper. So Dingon had somehow both waived claim and laid claim. A classic case of muddle-headed legalese was going to cause fractious disagreement. The treaty continued. The British residents at Pontantel, on their part, engage for the future never to receive or harbour any deserter from the Zulu country or any of its dependencies. You can see where this is going. And to use every endeavour to secure and return to the king every such individual endeavouring to find an asylum among them. This was the crux of the agreement. It continued. Any infringement of this treaty on either part invalidates the whole. There was a growing disconnect between the settlers and the Zulu around Durban. The man who was the mover behind this treaty was none other than missionary and former Navy officer, Captain Alan F. Gardiner. Dingana was aware of the role that missionaries were playing across southern Africa, and he clearly differentiated between them, the settlers, and the Boers. By now, the American Board for Foreign Missions had also established themselves at Durban and had sent Reverends G. Champion Alden Grout and Dr. Adams to attend to the needs of the settlers and the Zulu. Reverend Francis Owen had arrived as well and was living amongst the Zulu close to Mgungunglovu and was assisting Dingan in his negotiations with the Fuertrekkers, specifically with Piet Retief. The Boers, meanwhile, were marching inexorably towards this land, this green land of Natal, with its superb farms, its brimming rivers, its startlingly beautiful and memorable mountains. The Boers were also bringing their brand of Christianity into the region, imbued as it was with the chosen people narrative, a fundamentalist approach that was going to hurtle straight into the equally fundamentalist approach of Dingan's Zulu theocracy. As we'll hear next episode, the tension between the pro-Natal trekkers and pro-Northern trekkers was also reaching boiling point. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter at deslatham. Until next, salagatli.